Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. The NASDAQ dropping for the fourth straight day as Apple keeps dragging the index lower. The tech titan now down over 6% in the last two days. Is this all about the crackdown in China? And if so, how worried should companies like Nike, Tesla, Qualcomm be right now? A deep dive coming up. Plus, a $100 billion opportunity. That's how big J.P. Morgan says the market for weight loss drugs could be. Just how much could that mean for the biggest players in the space? We'll debate that. And later, are you ready for some football and some sports betting? NBC's magic wall maestro Steve Kornacki will be along to take us inside the numbers. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from our brand new set, Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Bono and Eisen, and Steve Grosso. We start off with the second straight rotten day for Apple. Shares down to Another 3% today. They are down more than 6% over the past two sessions. The biggest stock in the world has also been the Dow's biggest loser two days in a row. The slide starting after a report China will expand its iPhone ban to state-owned companies. Semis tied to Apple also feeling the heat. Qualcomm, for instance, down 7%. Taiwan Semi down more than 2%. So is this just giving us a taste of how big the impact of a China crackdown could be and what other companies could face the wrath of Beijing Next, we have been saying this again and again. Uh, It is just up to China to decide how big the restrictions will be. And I think we have to be careful not to overstate what has happened here. Too late. (laughs) You're right. This is what happens in financial media. But the the, the fact that you can't use your iPhone at work doesn't mean you can't go out and buy an iPhone and we're banning this company. And and, and Tim Cook, of of all the major CEOs, and obviously it's the biggest company in the world, um, has done a fantastic tightrope act here in in trying to balance. uh, There are social issues. There are dynamics around the economics. There's Foxconn. There's everything. Um, I think this is important. I think it's important because, in fact, it does look like on some level China is responding and fighting back. I think what is more important to this news cycle is that it's coincident with the release of a very important phone uh, in China, the Huawei, the Mate 60, which has chip design, which has seemingly been able to uh, either kind of reconstitute a 5G phone without having 5G chips because Huawei is under major, major bans and restrictions from the U.S. Um, I think it comes at a time when Apple's had three straight quarters of declining sales. And I think what what it does is, is, is it just projects um, what's the multiple you want to put on this company. It doesn't change Apple's business that dramatically, I think. I think the concept of what we're talking about, we're going to continue to talk about and we should talk about it. Um, I just want to make sure we're not overstating this news. Sure. But the context is also that China's macro looks awful. Terrible right now. And there are already headwinds there for the Chinese consumer. And so you add to this, you know, hey, you know, you you cannot use an iPhone at work. Maybe that person chooses a Huawei phone and, and they are. an Apple phone. And incrementally, that could still hit revenue there. I think that's a bigger issue, actually. Can the Chinese consumer afford to keep buying iPhones at the same pace, right? That, to me, is a bigger issue. And to me, also, it's about rates having moved up and multiples needing to move down. And they were getting such a big multiple. Steve and I were talking about this in the green room. There's a hardware business, much bigger, and a software business, and a high multiple of 30-ish. If you back out the hardware, the software business is trading at way higher 
than 30. And so we've seen multiples for those kinds of businesses come down. So this is kind of an excuse to for the sell-off. Yeah. But um, I don't think in and of itself this news should be an 8 or 9% move in Apple. I just think that it was too high. You know what I think? Listen, investors are in a situation where they're shooting first and asking questions later. And I'll be honest, I never thought that would be the case with Apple. That's the biggest shocker there for me, that the selling is coming before any material development in this particular news cycle. Now, it's lost about $200 billion of market cap. Now, you really want to ask yourself, is the move really worth that? I would say and prognosticate no. However, I think that speaks to the fact that we just don't know that there is some volatility around the situation. And given the whimsical nature of what the Chinese government may do in retaliation, will they keep it here? Will they expand it to state-owned enterprises? Will the bans be, you know, is, will there be somewhat of a shadow ban where it's implied that you really shouldn't really, you shouldn't affiliate yourself by purchasing the phone? So we, we truly don't know. So I, I don't think it's a complete surprise given the rate environment that you mentioned that there was some sell-off. I mean, global companies view themselves as global companies, but in China, a lot of times companies are viewed as you know, belonging to a nation. It is a U.S. company, mm. and that's the way Apple is perceived. Well, well t- uh, Tim stated it on the opening. Tim Cook and Elon Musk have done a masterful job. Those are the two CEOs that have done a masterful job at being agnostic. So if there's anyone that's not considered U.S. and just independent, it's those two. That's number one. Number two, uh, Bonowin said that he, he shooting first. I don't think they shot first, because if you look at it, it's only down 8%. Right, Guy sat here last night and said, shouldn't it be down more if you're shooting first and, and, and not asking questions? And then getting back to the amount of phones that are really in question, Dan Ives is talking about that he sees it as being 500,000 phones. Mm-hmm. The market is probably pricing in 5 million phones at this point. So they are shooting first. The problem is they're running out of bullets. So you saw the stock today, it bounced. Does it continue to bounce? I think so. I bought it yesterday. I bought it again today. I don't think that anyone should rush out and buy 100% of whatever, they're, whatever they think their position is going to be. But when you look at the services arm, that's growing. That's the growth. So Karen talks about hardware. They're separating themselves from the hardware dynamic of being that company. Yes, they get an exorbitant multiple, but that's where the growth is going to be coming from. The install base is incredible and only growing. In terms of proof, Bank of America had an interesting note saying that, uh, you know, you should take a look at App Store revenue in, in the coming quarter, because that's where you will see it. If App Store revenue slows down, because in China it's 26% of total revenue. That's at the App Store revenue. Yeah. And it's, it's the higher margin revenue. It's the sure. higher margin revenue. That's where you'll, you'll see it. So we'll, we'll get that data in terms of how effective that ban is. Um, in terms of being enforced and so on. From and, that and, and, and I bring us back to yesterday's news also around the EU. I mean, it seems to me like the EU is really looking at the App Store uh, and they're calling them a gatekeeper. And, and, uh, um, but I, I think there's multiple dynamics. There, we're talking about the multiple. We're talking about the global macro. Um, I think we have to talk about also just you know, within, within the market space and we talk about equal weighted ETFs versus uh, market cap weighted. And, and, and look, uh, what we know and the data that we're getting is that the data flow is going to uh, equal weighted ETFs. And you look at today though, um, 
let's be clear. Apple was a significant underperformer to Google, to Amazon, to yeah. anyone else in the in the mega cap tech space. It's not it's not by accident. And I think it's a combination also, though. Let's, let's highlight. I mean, September 12th is a big day for the company. And yet it's you know, that's the whole point. If September 12th and the release of the 15 is not that big of an event, I'm not saying it has to be that big of an event. And I'm sure mm-hmm. um, you'll point out, Steve, that, that they haven't been big events for a long time. Right. But I, I and it's, they, it's, they normally run up into that event. So maybe now that event won't be won't be the sell on the news day that it's normally been because it's sold off prior to that event. So that's I just think it's not a coincidence, though, that you're running into this kind of pressure um, also coincident with the big release date. Right. And the semiconductors, I mean, we mentioned Qualcomm and Taiwan Semi. But if you take a look specifically at the Apple supplier, Skyworks was down 7 percent. Cirrus is down something like four plus percent. Yeah, I mean, Apple was one of the biggest beneficiaries with this Huawei ban. So I don't think it should come as a complete surprise that they're going to give up some of that value. They added massive market value, mainly at at, uh, Huawei's expense. So I would expect there to be some collapsing of that divergence that we saw three years ago. Um, I think to put it in context, as we all have been really trying to do here, we still don't know all of the data yet, and it's going to start trickling out. 8% perhaps isn't a, a, a complete kill shot, but that's a material move for a name. Well, the big, that, big thing it's the is first the, name that people rush into when the they go to the point. And the big thing is the triple Qs. You said it last night. As Apple goes, so does the market. Is that the question? And you have Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon account for 25% of the queues. Right. So if this starts to expand, that's not just Apple, and it's all of those top names, then how do you mount a rally? Because if those names don't perform, the market doesn't perform, well, period. That's, that's the question. You, you, know, you hold Nike. Um, we've been saying this for a long time, Karen. Just, you know, the exposure that U.S. companies have to China in terms of, you know, the thesis that that's going to be the growth market. Right. And it used to be. And it, and it used and to it, be. Right. And, and now maybe that's a discount to well, the business. I, I'll, I'll say this. Um, in terms of incremental um, growth of one's business, I mean, the, the aggregate base in China may not be growing as fast, but it's still a massive base to go right. out and attack. And a lot of these brands are still are still going there. But um, this also comes, there was terrible export data out of China. So, I mean, it's what we say. Part of this is the Chinese economy. Part of these are the geopolitics. Uh, I don't think the geopolitics get better. I think they get worse. It's also interesting that, that on a day when semiconductors got, got slammed, Intel, the American flag-waving chip play, um, was up big. And I think it's more than a coincidence. I mean, I think there, there are um, home team favorites. There are national champion companies. And Intel hasn't really covered itself in glory in this country relative to its global peers. But I think that has something to do with why it was higher. Right. Our next guest says global companies are going to have to fight to be in China. CNBC contributor DeWardrick McNeil joins us now. He's a managing director, senior policy analyst at Longview Global. DeWardrick, great to get your take on, on this. Do you think that it gets worse? Do you think that when you take a look at other companies um, that that do business in China, where there are alternatives in theory, that China will favor the home team or another team that's not a U.S. team? Well, you raise an interesting point here, Melissa. The real question is, have we entered an escalatory, retaliatory, tit-for-tat cycle like we saw during the trade war? And if we have, and it's possible that we have, then there are some sectors, some companies that I think will have some challenges. I think in aviation, uh, Boeing, I think China has an alternative in their mind. They're happy to play Airbus off of Boeing. They also have a domestic uh, brand, the Comac C919 or C929 as well. So they think they have an alternative uh, there. Automobiles, look, 
Tesla, we've been talking about this for quite some time, GM uh, possibly uh, are at risk with BYD. You know, just this this past week, we saw BYD in Europe at the Munich Auto Show, and their message was, we're beating you in our home market, and we're coming to Europe to beat you in your market. So, you know, I think there are a lot of concerns here about whether or not we are, in fact, uh, in this retaliatory cycle. And if we are, Melissa, even though companies may see themselves as multinational brands or global companies, frequently governments and citizens, particularly nationalist citizens with the rise in populist movements around the world, don't see companies as multinational. They see a flag attached to them. And if you're going to China, you have to understand there are a lot of competitors there. You're going to have to get into a competition mindset. And the Chinese have their own widgets. And they're looking to sell them, not just in China, but in third markets as well. Eduardo, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Did, is this some of this on the heels of uh, Secretary Raimondo's visit? What kind of happened? Because it seemed like the rhetoric escalated after that. Look, I think the Chinese have been sort of hot under the collar for quite some time about the way their businesses have been uh, treated. And this was a great way with the Huawei announcement moving to seven nanometers, uh, something that the Commerce Department uh, actually has been very involved in in terms of the chip ban. All of this is coincidental, but too coincidental for those of us who watch China. I think the timing here uh, says a lot about uh, what China is looking to do. And it's, it's really uh, to send a signal uh, that we are not going to be stopped. You can slow us down, but that we will continue to do what it takes to have indigenous uh, development, to be self-reliant to the degree that we can. And, and this is the challenge, Karen. I'm not sure if they're going to win this over the long term, but I think they certainly feel comfortable that they sent a strong signal right after Secretary Raimondo's trip. And Wardrick, it's Tim. You've also said in your notes, I thought this was fascinating. It's kind of what you're saying here. China rarely takes actions that will harm China with no alternative. Is the point now that Huawei's ready? Is the point now that we really feel like we've actually, and you know, this, this phone sold out in hours um, and it's priced below Apple at a time when the consumer's under pressure. And it's not a low cost phone. I mean, it's $965. Uh, but is the point that Huawei's ready to challenge? And as you say, China would be okay if they had to actually push uh, you know, on in a world where there was really more opposition to Apple. Yeah, I think that's the message here, Tim. I'm not sure that they are ready. I think, you know, you made a, a point before I came on about sort of right-sizing this news. This Mate 60 is an impressive phone. I think it surprised Washington for sure, but it's seven nanometers. Apple, in a couple of, uh, of days here, will debut their uh, 15 Pro. That's a three nanometer chip. So, you know, there's still a lot of room here between seven nanometers and three nanometers. But the Chinese are, are very comfortable that they don't have to be the best. They just have to be good enough uh, to dominate their market. And quite frankly, the Mate 60 Pro may be at seven nanometers just good enough, Tim. So that that's the question that I think we have. But it, it certainly got the attention of many here in Washington. So we may see when Congress returns a discussion about a, a, a broader yard and a, and a taller fence, as Jake uh, uh, Sullivan likes to say about small yards and, uh, and high fences here. So last quick question to Wardrick, because we're just about out of time. But it, it, I mean, it sounds like you think this gets worse. I'm I'm fearful, Melissa, that we are entering into a tit-for-tat retaliatory cycle like we saw uh, during the trade war. And to Tim's point, and I've made this 
point in my notes, China is going to look for places where they can do this, where they have an alternative. Think about what they did with soybeans. They had a reliable alternative with Brazil and Russia. And so they were prepared to really level on the tariffs for soybeans. You'll see some of the same action if we are, in fact, back in uh, one of these escalatory, retaliatory ladders. I hope not, but I fear that we are. DeWardrick, thanks. Good to see you. DeWardrick McNeil, Longview Global. We have some pretty good options too, right? So there's India, there's South Korea, there's Vietnam, there's other options. So China's not the only one with options. And Karen just said, what happened after Secretary Raimondo was there? She got hacked. Right. Yes, so she, yes, well, yes. So she yes, got yes, hacked yes. and she was she was not happy with that. And she told the Chinese officials that she was hacked and was not happy about that. So that's what's been ratcheting a lot of this, I would guess. And yet you still but, bought Apple twice. Yeah, because I think that China is all bark, no bite at this point. I think we have them versus they have us, to be honest with you. All bark, no bite? I, no, I, I'm not willing to go there. I definitely think they have a bite. <laughs> I, I, think, I think whether or not their bite is as vicious as they think they're willing to bite. That's the scary thing. As Dwardrick said, the, the distance between a 7 nanometer and a 3 nanometer. 4 nanometer. Nice. <laughs> in their head, she did that <laughs> like That's that. That's good math. Wow. You mm. went to Harvard. But it mm. is it's a big difference. Yes, in terms of the implications of the technology. And so the fact that they're flexing their muscle there seems like uh, an, an insignificant tit for tat, or at least an irresponsible one. I think the barriers to entry in terms of being able to produce soybeans are light years different than being able to produce that technology. All right. Meantime, Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon just wrapping up an exclusive interview with our own David Faber, the bank's chief, addressing a wide range of topics from the company's performance to the IPO market to his own portrayal in the press. David Faber joined us from Co- Goldman's Cornucopia, Cornucopia, Communicopia conference. <laughs> with a look. It was a Cornucopia. That, of one's, that's yeah, one, that one is in November. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Cornucopia, too, Melissa. But good job on the math there between seven and three. Try. We got that going. Um, yeah. Listen, as you might expect, of course, we spent a good amount of time on that very unusual uh, spate of uh, stories from major news organizations that really dealt with the subject of uh, Mr. Solomon's personality and whether, in fact, it was getting in the way to a certain extent of his management of the firm. Uh, But, uh, you know, for our purposes, of course, his comments about the capital markets and M&A certainly perhaps more centered for what uh, what, again, we care about. And we've got a couple of big IPOs coming next week. You guys will be talking about that a lot. At the NASDAQ is going to be arm pricing on the 13th to trade on the 14th of September. And I did ask Solomon, you know, overall, is he feeling a bit better about the IPO calendar and the capital markets as a whole? I definitely do feel better about the, the, you know, the capital markets. And if you ask me to, to kind of look ahead, you know, over the course of the next few months, especially if arm and some of these other IPOs, you know, go well, um, I think you're going to see a meaningful increase in activity. Now, David, it's often anemic, an anemic amount of activity. Yeah, I mean, nothing really, happened. Nothing. Last year. No, no. I mean, it's it's really investment banking activity. If you go back to the second quarter, investment banking activity in the second quarter was a, a ten-year low, yeah. and so it's not hard to improve off of that. But I think we could very quickly get back to what I'd call a more normalized level of activity in the capital markets, and that's obviously very, very good for Goldman Sachs. Of course. Instacart will uh, soon follow, potentially, guys. So, you know, a lot to focus on when it came to M&A. Uh, Solomon also kind of uh, a more positive um, uh, uh, forecast, at least, talking about dialogue starting to pick up. That's something I've been hearing as well and sort of just talking to many of the practitioners 
whether they be lawyers or bankers, in terms of at least conversations, which, of course, need to take place before you can actually get announcement of deals. He sort of indicated that'll be fourth quarter and into 2024. But those are still the key businesses for Goldman Sachs. Obviously, trading in the capital markets and advising on M&A, Melissa, far more than the roughly 5% that consumer banking represents, even though, of course, that also, in addition to Mr. Solomon's personality, has gotten a lot of attention of late. Is he DJing less? <laughs> I'm, I'm half. I'm only half joking, because that was one of the, you know one of the yep. many gripes, personality defects. I think you you said to David Solomon highlighted in these numerous articles about him and his tenure. The fact that he's a DJ on the side, and so I'm wondering how how he sort of tried to reclaim his image. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's a process. I think for my purposes today, we asked those questions that mm-hmm. I think felt uh, necessary to ask, given, again, that really unusual spate of publicity specific to so many different anonymous quotes, basically saying he's a very difficult guy in nice terms. Uh, I did ask him if he's going to DJ again. He didn't answer the question. I kind of took it as a no. And I think, Melissa, it's been as much as a year since his last appearance, as far as I'm aware. So. That is something that he has clearly cut back on as well. All right. David, thank you. David Faber joining us from Communicopia (laughs) out west. Um, We bring this up because, you know, it's it's always fascinating to talk about personalities when it comes to CEOs. But for a time, there were questions about whether or not he would continue to be CEO or whether his days were numbered. Right. Are you saying that as if those questions are no longer there? I don't know. No, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I think that at one point the drumbeat was loud and steady, uh-huh. and it's not as much anymore. Well, they did. I think he was trying to talk a little bit about. Okay, we're past that consumer yeah. business, right? Right, right. All right. So that was obviously a big waste of time, money, resources. Didn't work out. So good for them for exiting it. It's amazing to me that Goldman Sachs, which you really think of as you know the best of the best in a lot of ways, trades at 1.1 something times tangible book value. That's kind of amazing to me. And yet I haven't felt compelled to own it. Why? I think, you know, if they're talking about M&A, investment banking, um, those, those sort of revenue streams don't trade at a great multiple. So even if activity improves, I don't think that's as solid footing as, for me, J.P. Morgan is the place to go. All right. Coming up, a UAW strike could be just days away, and the union just responding to the latest proposal from one big automaker. The details and how a work stoppage could impact the entire industry next. And up, up, and away, we are getting in on the greenback with the dollar on pace for an eight-week winning streak. So how are the options pits cashing in? We'll find out when, when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customer 
customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com, that's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. The clock is ticking on a potential strike in the auto space. The president of the United Auto Workers calling GM's latest attempt to sidestep a stalemate, quote, insulting. Our Phil LeBeau has more on these negotiations. Seems like we're at a standstill, Phil. We are. And yet at the same time, there's progress that is being made. I mean, it's not like there's no negotiations and they work on a bunch of stuff before they get to the really meaty stuff. And that's always at the very end. Here's what's happening today. As we speak, Representatives from the UAW are meeting with Ford. Again, Ford's giving them another counter offer. Whether or not Ford releases that, I don't think they're planning on doing that, but who knows. And then there is General Motors. If you take a look at shares of General Motors today, the company said, okay, you want a counter offer from us? Here's our counter offer 16% over four years, 10% initially, and then two lump sum payments over the course of four years of 3%. That's how GM gets to 16%. Also, a $5,500 signing bonus. There's usually a signing bonus when these contracts are ratified. So a few hours after that was released, what did the UAW say? Sean Fain did not mince words again, calling it not only insulting, but then going on to say GM either doesn't care or isn't listening when we say we need economic justice at GM by 11.59 p.m. on September 14th. The clock is ticking. Stop wasting our members' time. Tick tock. Similar to what we've heard from him, whether it's with GM or Ford, throwing the proposal into the garbage can on Facebook Live. Um, This wall, do we have the wall? The wall showing it's really all about whether or not the automakers can afford to pay or how much more can they afford to pay. And you see where they are relative to the foreign automakers in the U.S. And then there's the estimate for Tesla considerably lower. By the way, with regard to Ford and Stellantis, there's the counter offer talks that are going on this afternoon between the UAW and Ford. They've already had a couple of offers from Ford. Stellantis will be making another counter offer tomorrow to the UAW. Bottom line is I don't think we see anything really until middle to end of next week. And again, most people I've talked with in the auto industry do not believe that this is going to be resolved by next Thursday at 11.59 p.m. Wow. So 97% of members have voted in favor of a strike. Well, they voted to say to the the union leadership, you think it's time to go and call a strike, then call a strike. Yes. That's that's normal. Normal. Okay. That is normal. That happens every four years. All they're saying to the leadership is you ultimately make the decision and then we'll go from there. What is GM's leverage at this point? GM's leverage. GM's leverage to the the rank and file is, do you really want to go through with this? We're going to give you a healthy raise, Mm -hmm. and we're not going to give you 40%. Nobody's going to give them 40%. But 16% is not going to cut it, according to the UAW. Now now the question becomes, how much more can they afford to pay? I think a great stat came from Adam Jonas, I want to say about a week, week and a half ago. Take a guess. What percentage of Ford's uh, global revenue, annual global revenue, is eaten up by UAW cost. 4%. Yeah, you are right. But how much, if they, if they give them, let's say they give them 25%, how much more is that going to hurt them? Maybe a percentage and a half, according to Adam Jonas. So it's not the end of the world. But it is substantial. If you're Ford, you're looking at it saying, wait a second, that's really going to cut into our margins. And I think Adam Jonas said 
maybe a 20 percent hit on the uh, on the EBIT margins is what his estimate is if they did that. So, you know, they'll come to an agreement. We all know that. But I do think that we're, we're trending towards a strike. All signs, everybody I've talked with said we are headed towards a strike. But a strike's you know, ultimately going to be destructive for both sides. And, yes. and, and you've seen this before in terms of the negotiation tactics and how these stocks trade. And I realize we're supposed to be the traders on this. But, but there's no question to me that we've been pricing in this news for a long time. Yes. I mean, Karen and I sit and bang our heads on the desk <laughs> every night about GM and it's, and it's multiple and ultimately how effective they've been on their execution and really where they've been on free cash flow. Um, I, I feel like this is, this is a great time um, because because we've exhausted all of these arguments on both sides. And at some point, there is going to be some clarity here. It may not be good, but it's going to be clarity, and these stocks are getting destroyed on the lack of it. So, Phil, how much do you think the um – I understand strike seems inevitable at this point. Right. But at what point does the workers start to get fractured in their, does the solidarity get fractured? It's not like the writer's strike where a lot of them aren't working anyway. Right. right? So this is a different dynamic. It How is a much- different dynamic, but, but it's a different time from this perspective. I think that whether you're a UAW member or any other labor union, you've got a little bit more cash cushion than you had, let's say, eight years ago. You just feel a little bit better in terms of being able to withstand a strike. doesn't mean you like it. doesn't mean you're like, yeah, sure, I'll walk off the line, you know, for five, six, seven weeks. Uh, you're going to get 500 bucks uh, a week if you're striking. Now, look, if you're not at a plant that goes on strike, you're going to get laid off. You'll have to file for unemployment. That's how it usually works. Um, and, you know, you're not happy about it, but you're ultimately, you're buying into the idea, I'm going to get X percent raise at the end of the day, and I got to go through this. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Another day, another dollar gain. More like another week. The almighty greenback about to notch an eighth straight week of gains. And the options pits are throwing their two cents in on the currency's next move. Plus, weight loss drugs working wonders on the waistline, but the potential market is doing anything but slimming down. Just how big the industry could grow to be. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. The U.S. dollar is about to do something it hasn't done in more than eight years. The greenback is on pace to notch its eighth straight week of gains for the first time since February 2015. But options traders have their eyes on another major currency that could rocket higher. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Taking a look at FXY, that is the ETF that tracks the Japanese yen. Obviously, that's been very weak all year. It traded more than eight times its average daily call volume today. The busiest contract were the January 2025 66 strike calls. We saw buyers paying about $3.80 a contract for those nearly 1,200 traded hands. Also very busy, the 68 strike calls. Buyers of these are expecting FXY to go above 70 in the next year or so. 
Thanks for that, Mike Coe. For more Options Action, tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, just how big could the market for weight loss drugs be? One analyst is looking for a huge surge. What it means for competition in the space, even as a new use case is being investigated. The names that could see outsized gains next. Plus, Walmart giving a new spin to the term rollback, the move by the big box retailer that could give the real read on the strength of the labor market. We'll discuss that when Fast Money returns. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're back right after this. It's... Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Mixed to end the day, the Dow up 57 points, the S&P down three-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq down about nine-tenths of a percent, now in a four-day losing streak. Some after-hours movers here, shares of DocuSign higher after a top and bottom line beat, and RH dropping after issuing weak Q3 revenue and operating margin outlook. Meantime, a huge call from J.P. Morgan sending shares of Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly higher today. Analyst Chris Schott saying the U.S. diabetes and obesity drug could uh, market could eventually hit $100 billion in sales a year. It could crack $50 billion by the end of the decade. Eli Lilly, one of the biggest players in the space, hit another all-time high today. For more, let's bring in Mizuho healthcare sector strategist Jared Holtz. Jared, great to have you with us. Um, great to see you. Thank you. You know, it, it seems like these drugs, GLP-1s, they could be the cure-all uh, for not just, you know, obesity, uh, but for diabetes potentially entirely in terms of the eliminating the use or the need for insulin, in terms of uh, addictions of all sorts, in terms of Alzheimer's, in terms of sleep apnea. So why should we be skeptical when, when a note comes out and says $100 billion eventually? It is, it's the cure-all drug, it seems. I mean, maybe we shouldn't be at this point. I think the the reason to be skeptical um, probably comes down to a couple of things. It comes down to, you know, how big of a target these drugs wind up being for payers, um, the managed care companies, and how they kind of navigate the next several years from a, a demand standpoint and from a pricing standpoint and an access standpoint. That would probably be, you know, maybe the biggest deterrent um, and then the second is just pricing longer term. But if these drugs are really cure-alls like, you know, we're kind of finding them out to be, you know, then maybe the amount of skepticism with respect to the market size, um, we have to kind of think about a little bit. Are we sort of in a Goldilocks uh, place right now where the belief and the hopes for all these drugs are still in the stocks um, and and we're not yet at a point where it is proven that it will reduce cardiac events. It is proven that it'll reduce uh, the symptoms of Alzheimer's. Because once these things are proved medically, then they become targets eventually, I would think, of government negotiations and, and other sort of price controls, scrutiny, scrutiny by the U.S. government in terms of the ability to price these drugs. Totally. Um, I agree with all of that. I think that as time goes on and we kind of see what the net effect is for patients that are on these drugs longer term, um, you know, we're going to kind of find out what the real opportunity is. And and yes, I think we're we're talking about some really blue sky scenarios for um, Novo and Lilly here, and they're probably not unfounded. The stocks have been incredible performers, outperformed every other pharma company, pharma stock in the peer group. Um, this is the core reason why. And we'll kind of have to see over the next few years how this all plays out. But, you know, to have a small study in the New England Journal from the University of Buffalo that 
had less than a dozen patients have this profound effect on the stocks <laughs> and then also have an impact on the broader diabetes space on the medical device side is very, I think, significant because these studies are going to continue to happen and they're likely going to be larger in scale as we move forward. Jared, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So it sounds like you're a little bit skeptical. I mean, this number, that's a big number, $100 billion, and yet their price target was $600, which is really not very far at all. One day, one, two days trading away from where we are. You sound a little mm-hmm. more skeptical. Where do you think, how far ahead of these big numbers do you think the stock might be now? Well, Karen, I'm not so skeptical that the revenue numbers can get to these, these levels, $50 billion, $100 billion over time. It's theoretically possible if, if the price point is, is where it's at now, you know, it doesn't take that many patients to get to those type of levels. So I'm not super skeptical on that. I just feel like the very, very bullish outlook and the estimates that are out there are probably not all that helpful for the stocks over the course of time because the bar becomes so high. And if for any reason they should stumble along the way, that's where I think you run into a problem. I mean, it just doesn't have the same appeal where by the analyst community kind of like allowed for beats and raises with a hundred billion dollar market size. I just don't know how much more we can get over the next couple of years in terms of modeling. Um, As Lillian Novo, as the story there gets better and better, it seems like the story gets worse and worse for a Dexcom Mm -hmm. and a ResMed. And we've already seen the impact on on ResMed very clearly. They, for instance, are going to be speaking at the the Bank of America uh, healthcare conference next week. What is the narrative that these CEOs can can give investors at this point to say, you know what, our business is not going to be eaten away by the impact of these semaglutides? I, I don't know what the narrative that they're going to um, kind of portray over the next couple of weeks is going to be. You know, a couple of these companies are at um, broker-sponsored conferences in the healthcare arena this week, and they've tried to dispel some of the worry or apprehension as far as what the GLP-1 category is going to do their, to their businesses, particularly on the diabetes side, and it really hasn't worked overly well. Um, I just feel like you know, I really want to take a step back and, and reassess some of these stocks in the in the medical device space. I just don't know if they're going to work because this overhang is going to persist for a number of quarters, years to the point where I really don't know what management teams can say to get investors to think there's nothing here. Jared, thanks. Always good to see you. Jared Holes. Uh, Steve, where are you on this? Yeah, so I mean, Novo and and Lilly are by a large margin, as Jared said, outperformed the entire group. But I think that the problem, though, is that not everyone who is classified as obese is going to run out and take a pill. So ResMed's getting hit hard, and I'm not I'm not saying go out and buy the stock now, but they're assuming that everyone with a weight issue is going to take a pill, and I don't think well, that's the case. what if it's not everybody with a weight issue, but it's some people with a weight issue, some people with cardiac issues, some people Apnea with Alzheimer's, or, some people yeah. with addictions, and you add that up. They're already taking those pills, though. I, you know, it's, I hear you on the holy grail, but I, they're already taking pills. Somewhat of the same conclusion, a different path. How do you project out the revenues around these drugs when you just saw what's happened with the, with the Medicare negotiating? So, for instance, fine, even if all of those use cases are applicable, 
how long do these people have to be taking these drugs? And, do, and are the dosages staying? Are they becoming more I- intermittent? So I, I just don't really see how there's much upside left that has not already been priced in. Coming up, are you ready for some football? Get ready to place your bets because kickoff is in a few hours. We're talking touchdowns and fumbles in the sports betting space ahead. But first, Walmart is rolling back pay. What that could say about the state of the labor market. Those trades and more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Walmart's latest rollback is hitting employees' paychecks. A big box chain cutting its hourly uh, wage starting pay for some new hires. The retailer saying the move is meant to normalize wages across positions. But what does this say about the state of the labor market? That finally they're able to say, you know, we're not going to pay as much. Maybe that's a good thing for these retailers and for businesses. Yes, and I think it's a good thing for the Fed, right? I mean, this is what they wanted. If they could get either higher unemployment, which isn't ideal, but it's an acceptable sort of collateral damage, or lower wages, that's helpful. However, for that cust- for that consumer, who is that Walmart worker, is getting right? Less. Is getting less. We've already seen them be a little bit sort of, you know, pinched between gas prices. It's uh, net-net, I think it's probably good for the market. Coming up, we're ready. We are ready for some football. And our favorite political watcher turned pigskin pundit is here to handicap which teams are in the best shape to win it all this season. We'll kick things off right after this quick break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Place your bets because football is back. The NFL season is about to kick off in just a couple of hours with the Detroit Lions facing off against the Kansas City Chiefs. NBC's Steve Kornacki joins us with a look at the betting odds and some of the preseason favorites. Hey, Steve. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, we are about two and a half hours away from kickoff 2023. What we got here, these are the final preseason odds heading into the season. We've broken them down by conference. These are the top seven in each conference. So there's some other teams you don't see here, but these are sort of the top choices in each conference to win the Super Bowl. And you see the overall favorite uh, across both conferences to win the Super Bowl this year. It's the Kansas City Chiefs. They are favored to repeat. They are six to one as we enter the season. The second choice right behind them. It's the team the Chiefs just beat in the Super Bowl last year. The Philadelphia Eagles, they start out at 13 to 2, basically 6 and a half to 1. So Eagles, Chiefs, the odds makers are thinking rematch. Of course, in the entire Super Bowl history, we've only ever had one rematch in a Super Bowl of the previous year's uh, Super Bowl. That was Dallas, Buffalo. That was about 30 years ago. Some other notes here on this uh, on this screen here. How about the Jets? You don't usually see them with odds this low, with expectations this high. That has everything to do with Aaron Rodgers going from Green Bay to New York. Huge expectations there. The Cowboys sitting at 14 to 1. Are they snake bitten in the postseason? They haven't been to the NFC title game since the 1995 season. But again, they look like, at least on paper, a contender this year. So you see this, the Chiefs as the overall favorite to win the Super Bowl. How does the overall favorite typically do? Well, typically, I don't want to say it's a jinx, but they usually don't win the Super Bowl. Only twice in the last 15 seasons has the preseason favorite actually gone on to win the Super Bowl. A number of them have made it and lost. 
The last three Super Bowl winners, though, and this includes the Chiefs last year, were double-digit odds in the preseason. The Chiefs were 10 to 1 a year ago. The Bucks were 10 to 1. The Rams were 12 to 1. So recent history says it's not going to be one of those long, long shots, but it's not necessarily going to be the favorite either. And if you take a look at this matchup tonight, as we say, the Chiefs, they are seeking to repeat. They're at home here. Question mark about whether Travis Kelsey is going to be playing. And it's the Lions. Big expectations in Detroit for the first time in a long time. They've only won one playoff game in 65 seasons. Hey, Steve, it's Tim. So, first of all, if the New York Jets were a stock, we'd probably say they are trading at 80 to 90 times multiple, which means crazy, crazy expensive. I'll leave that for somebody else. Is the proliferation of online sports betting, has that changed the way these lines move around before the game? It seems like it, you know, if we were stock traders, again, which we are, we'd say the market's as deep as it's ever been in terms of the amount of people being involved in online sports betting. You know, and I, we actually use the Jets as an example because we just showed you. I go back to that screen. The Jets are, are 16 to 1 here to win the Super Bowl. When they opened betting uh, a few months ago, the Jets were 40 to mm, 1. Wow. So the public reacted to that Rodgers move. And there's really, you can see the hype building there right now. They've gone from 40 to 1 all the way to 16 to 1. Awesome. Steve, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. You got it. NBC's Steve. Kornacki. That's awesome. So we'll trade it as traders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we're, not, we're not trading the teams. We're not trading the odds. Okay. We're trading. But we're trading. Tonight's game? No. Oh. oh. Uh, you want to trade tonight's game? <laughs> nah. No, we're going to trade sports sort of. betting socks. Yeah, this, I mean, it seems like there's only one sports betting stock. You know, DraftKings seems like they ran away with it. Mm-hmm. So if you look, everything else is so warped. It's the only direct play. But I just put ten grand on Minnesota to win everything. <laughs> you see them thirty-five to one. Nice. What, who's your pick? I think Jeff King's the way you play it. I mean, my personal pick for the games are the 49ers, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. Uh, all in, all into the hype train. But I think Jeff King's is the way you do it. I think Pin was there neck and neck for a while, but I think there's been some changes in that landscape. Karen's actually a football. Yes, she is. I am knowledgeable about football. I, 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 is that true about the Lions? I One playoff? Lions, Tigers, and Bears, Karen. One playoff game? <laughs> Just, In 65, 65 seasons? seasons? Wow. What do you think Even about Kelsey Barry being Sanders? out, though? You were talking I about know. that. Yeah, I know. Well, know, that's... We were talking about how important is the tight end. Well, when I mean, Mahomes is the quarterback. Uh, any team with Patrick Mahomes. How important shuffle is the tight end for you, Karen? When they shuffle the wide receiver. By the way, you can catch tonight's game between the Lions and the Chiefs on the big network. NBC coverage kicks off in just over an hour from now, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, final trades. Fun day for our Fast Money family, ringing the opening bell here at the NASDAQ to celebrate the show's 16-plus years of broadcast. Wow. And the launch of our newly designed set here in Studio B, the reimagined NASDAQ market site. CNBC President Casey Sullivan joined me, the traders, of course, our entire production team, folks behind the scenes who make it all happen. Uh, That happened this morning. Uh, at this event here. It was fun. I mean, it was exciting. Right? It was exciting. And, and, and I'll tell you what, our friends at the NASDAQ, too, I mean, they, they oh, yeah. built a beautiful set. Our yep. friends at CNBC have helped them, and it's, it's, a, it's a home like we've never seen. It's yep. exciting. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Tim. Intel. Uh, again, if you think about the iPhone ban or whatever that means more broadly, I think it actually shines a very bright light on U.S. players, and we know what the story needs to be at Intel. Uh, I think it's their time. Karen? Yeah, I think it's actually time to sell some upside calls in Holy Grail, which is Eli Lilly. It's run so far so fast. Not that it isn't great, but. Bonoin. 
under-owned, and the trend is strong, XLE. Ethereum Trust. I've used this one as my final trade before. In January, it was four and change. In July, in June, it was seven and change. It's It was nine and a half in August. This thing is going straight up now. It's almost 12. Mad Money starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.